Hey agency owners, it's time for a new episode of the Agency Blueprint, the number one podcast for agency owners looking to discover strategies for scaling an agency to seven figures and beyond, while reducing stress and getting your personal life back. I'm your host, Robert Patton, international bestselling author, agency scale partner, and founder of Creative Agency Success. If you enjoy our podcast, please do me a favor and hit that subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode and help keep the show at the top of the charts so it can be found by more agency owners like you. And now for the show. Hey everyone, we have Marcel Petipaw back. Uh, if you don't know who he is, Marcel is the CEO and co-founder of Parakeeto, a company dedicated to helping agencies measure and improve their profitability by streamlining their operations and reporting systems, a problem he discovered while running his own agency. In his work as a speaker, podcast host, and consultant specializing in agency profitability optimization, he's helped hundreds of agencies around the world measure the right metrics and improve their operations and profitability. Welcome back, Marcel. Robert, it is a pleasure to be here. Always fun to hang out with you. You and I can talk for hours and hours about this sort of stuff. I'd love to kind of hear from you from a billing perspective. What do you see kind of happening in in the industry at the moment? I love the MRR model, but obviously there's a mix between project revenue and MRR model. I'd love to hear kind of what you see happening in a trend amongst the agencies you're working with at the moment. I think at the macro level, what we've both seen, I'm sure, play out over the last, let's call it 20 years or so, but more intensely over the last 10 years, is that there's a lot of margin pressure on agencies. And it's coming from a lot of different directions. We've seen the globalization of competition. So now you're competing against agencies all over the world for the same client. Many of them have an economic advantage because the cost of labor where they are is substantially lower than where you are. You've got clients expecting more for less. And a lot of that has to do with their capabilities internally getting higher because technology is making all this stuff easier. And I don't know if we've ever seen anything more potent to that effect than generative AI. And your labor cost is going up. I, I remember, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if you were a young person or even a, you know, a millennial age person today working at an agency, you kind of expected to not get paid that well and work a lot of hours, a lot of overtime, a lot of evenings, weekends. And you kind of just like did that, you cut your teeth and eventually you graduate to the brand side. That's not how things work anymore. And I think that's a really good thing. People should have work-life balance. We should abide by the, the contracts that we set in place with them about how much time they should be working. But it's making it a less forgiving environment for agency owners as it relates to margins, because we can't let our team just subsidize our poor management with their evenings and weekends like it used to be done back in the day. So all of these things have created margin pressure. And the response that I've seen a lot of small shops take to that to try and protect their margins is becoming increasingly specialized. And there's all kinds of reasons why that benefits their profitability. It, it comes from both earning potential and also operational efficiency, but they're also adopting more complex business models. It used to be back in that time that the predominant way of billing was time and materials, and you would be compared to other agencies based on your rate cards. And now we're trying to move away from that. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with abstracting away from time and abstract away from rates so that we can try to find efficiency and anchor things to, to value. Margin. So. So we're seeing more complexity, flat rates, value-based pricing, all the different flavors of retainer that you want to talk about, the flat retainer, the value-based retainer, the credit-based retainer, the it rolls over, it doesn't roll over, it's ours, but it's not ours. We've seen all the different variations of those. And then these kind of abstracted time materials models for high-value, high-risk work where it's sprint-based or based on some kind of team leasing model. So within a small firm now, 
I, we didn't used to see this, but you know, a firm with 20 people might have three or four of these different pricing models going on and a bunch of different staffing models on top of that. So full-time, part-time, contractors, freelancers, white-label partners. So there's a lot more complexity at the business model level, and there tends to be more specialization. And it's making the conversation around pricing, I think, a little convoluted and a little bit hard to navigate for agency owners, in my experience. They, they tend to be very confused and sometimes insecure about this part of the business when we talk. 100% you hit on quite a few things. And because you guys can't see me, I was like laughing and smiling quite a lot while Marcel was talking <laughs> there. Um, one of the things that like I thought was very interesting, the first agency I ever worked at, it really bothered me in the, the model, right? Because, and most agencies are focusing exactly as what you're talking about. How do I maximize utilization? How do I get people at an 85, 90% utilization, which really you're just killing your team and really bad management is causing then problems for the team that then leads to burnout, which then has them leave. And I always just saw it as like, well, why are you spending so much time training, getting your team up to speed to then just have them walk out the door once they can do a great job? And it's like, that really bothered me, the mm. first agency I worked at, but you hit it really clearly. The specialization component is super important, especially in this, this market and environment is when someone can work with anyone across the globe and technology has advanced that in a really meaningful way and continues to is that how is a client going to differentiate other than price, right? And so the more that they're focusing on the price component, it, it is dropping down margins, kind of the race to the bottom. And yeah, 100% there's all colors of the rainbow when it comes to billing models. If you were talking with an agency owner that's trying to figure out whether they're on the right or wrong hmm. billing model, what would be the factors that you would advise them to think about in how they should be looking at their, their billing model? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm going to start by talking about the kind of what needs to be true no matter what the billing model is. And ultimately, to me, it's when we're pricing out a project, we want to make sure that there's enough gross margin for us to be fundamentally set up for success. And I think that's the first place that gets missed is that's not even considered. It's not measured. There's no real understanding of what the gross margin is going to look like at the project level or even some proxy for that, like an average billable rate, for example, which could be used as some kind of a directional indicator of if we're in the right ballpark. So that's the starting point is, you know, are we pricing this such that we're going to make a 60, 70% or higher margin if things go as planned? And then the next part of that is starting to think about risk and value and can we increase that margin and what is the risk profile of this service offering? Because of course, what I just said, Sounds really simple in principle, but anyone listening to this is going to go, great, but like, what if I don't know how much time it's going to take? Or what if the scope is really risky? Or what if I'm selling a process, not a project? Like I'm, I'm doing an agile methodology to solve this problem, and I, I literally can't predict how long it's going to take. What do I do in that situation, right? So that formula for delivery margin assumes, or gross margin assumes, that we know what the scope is going to be. So this is where we have a framework that we take clients through called the agency pricing quadrant. And it's where we want to first evaluate what is the value of this particular instance. And then we want to look at the thing that doesn't get talked enough uh, about in pricing models, in my opinion, which is what is the risk profile of this and how good of a job can we actually do of wrapping our arms around the scope? And that should help us understand where we're going to bring the pricing model. So I'll pause there, but we can get into the framework if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, the the risk thing, You, you I mean, you're talking about gross margin, 100% speaking my language as usual. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on that risk profile and how are you assessing that risk profile? Because that's super interesting. Yeah. So we'll start with value. I think everybody kind of understands this well, which is the question of how valuable is this in perception from the client? And this very important language there is how is the client perceiving the value? It doesn't really matter how valuable you think the service is. Unfortunately, that's not really going to help you in the sales process. So from the client's perspective, how valuable is the thing? And that is generally going to come down to two main factors. The first is your positioning, right? So how many other options do they have to compare you to? And the example I'll use for this all the time is, are you a graphic design firm? In that case, you're automatically positioning yourself in a low value side of that spectrum because you're competing against hundreds of thousands of options, everything from design pickle to Canva to IDEO. And so it's really hard for, to your point, the client to differentiate. However, if you said, we are a expert firm helping B2B software companies visually communicate complex data systems, you're still doing that using graphic design as the medium, but you're specialized in solving this problem. So if I'm a B2B software company with a complex data system, then I'm hard pressed to find many other people to compare you to. So the perception of value goes up. And then the other major factor outside of positioning tends to be the relative value. And the simple example here is if you're increasing the conversion rate by 1% on a website, what is that worth? Well, it depends on how much traffic and how many sales that website's getting. So considering the scale of the company, the value of solving that problem, is it is more specific to their vertical? Is the scale that they have going to impact the value? So that's kind of the first idea is, is this a high value or a low value service offering? And I want to make it clear that I think there's a, a narrative in the industry around, like, you can't be successful selling low value services. And certainly there's an argument to be made that it's more difficult, but I, I don't think it's fundamentally not possible because, I mean, a company like Design Pickle, they chose, that was their strategy. They said, we're going to go into this like highly commoditized thing and we're going to out-operationalize everybody. We're going to out-compete everybody on our operational prowess. Now, we'll be interested to see what happens with generative AI and that business model, but at Aggress, it worked for a while. So that's the vertical axis. If you're imagining in your head, you have a quadrant. Vertical axis is value. Are you at the high value or the low value end of that spectrum? And of course, it's a spectrum. So that's mm-hmm. the first side of it. Yeah, 100%. The, the other thing that, that I think that a lot of agency owners get stuck on, on the value component, right, is as you were talking about quantifying or really understanding what the value that they're going to get from what if you're working on a landing page or you're putting an email, your email sequence together or you're doing a marketing activity that you can see the direct ROI. It's easier to calculate and understand what kind of impact you can ultimately have. But then when you're talking with a branding agency, for example, one of the things I hear so incredibly often is I can't attribute value to it. And I fundamentally disagree, but I'd love to hear your opinion. Yeah, no, it, I think that comes down to your skill level at navigating the value conversation. And this gets talked about like it's a really simple and easy thing to do, but of course it's not. It takes a lot of training and it takes a lot of, especially as you're dealing with big clients because they they know this stuff now. It's not new to them. And so when you're trying to get them to expose like what they think the value of this is and what the potential for the business is, they know that that's you trying to find a higher anchor for the price point. So there's, there's you know, tactics that need to be used to try and navigate and try to get some exposure from the client on that. And there's all kinds of tactics, you know, challenging the client, coming at it from a different direction, asking an auxiliary question that leads them down another path. And you're kind of tricking them into this value conversation. But ultimately, it's about trying to get an understanding of what their business goals are and how this ties into it. 
and trying to assign a value to that business goal. And it doesn't necessarily have to come down to an objective number. You don't need the client to tell you, I think we can grow the business by a million dollars this year. You might just be able to look and say, well, you're a hundred million dollar company. You grew 30% year over year last year with the current brand that you have. We agree that the new brand would help you. So what is that 40%? Like you can start to ballpark that on your own and get a sense of the value based on you know, a strategic conversation with the client and anchoring this to like what their objectives are as a company. And that shouldn't be hard to get them to tell you. If you're having trouble getting a client telling you what they want and where they're going, then it's probably not a good client. No. And it's, or you're not feeling confident in the way that you're asking the question. I mean, I will directly hit a number of different questions that are ultimately pretty invasive the types of questions I'll ask when talking with a new agency, right? And I don't have NDA signed and I'm asking them about profit margins. I'm asking about number of clients, like, what are they billing? How are they billing? And they, they answer the question very directly because I'm asking the, the question confidently. So mm -hmm. then the client, they, the prospective client will answer the question because I'm asking it in that way. The thing that I think is interesting that we're talking about from a value perspective, which will lead into the next question about risk again, is that ultimately there's a huge component about the risk for the client as well, is how do they perceive the risk associated with success and failure as well? is the risk higher or lower when they work with you because of that specialization? So that also plays a huge component for the client and their perceived value. That's absolutely right. And it's so interesting because anytime you buy something, I think you, it just comes so naturally to you where your price sensitivity is relative to your certainty that you're going to get an outcome. And you know, I'm regularly more willing to pay more money for something that I perceive to have a much higher likelihood to get me to the outcome. What I'm valuing is the outcome. And my willingness to pay is hedged on the, the perception that I have of the likelihood of the thing I'm betting on getting me to the outcome. Specialization is such a simple way to increase the perception. And if you can back that up with case studies of people that look like you know the, the company that you're talking to, then it's, it's going to have a dramatic impact. 100%. Let's talk about risk on the agency side. I'm really curious about how you're assessing that risk profile. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. So risk, simply put, if we want to quantify, it comes down to, to what degree can you predict the amount of time or cost it's going to take to get this thing done for the client? So an example of a low risk project, that end of the spectrum would be you can get within a 10% margin of your original estimate very consistently. So good examples of this would be very productized services that have a, a very set process or something that you've just done enough times that you can very formulaically get to an estimate and get within that estimate very, very consistently. For example, I build landing pages for legal firms on Elementor and we've done like hundreds of them. That's probably going to be a very low risk type of engagement. On the high risk side, it's it, the higher the risk, the more difficult it is to predict. And extreme versions of high risk work would be custom software development at an enterprise scale on a newly developed software language that's not very well documented and doesn't have a big plug-in ecosystem, there is a tremendous amount of risk around that. And, and let's imagine it's a novel idea, something that's never been built before. You know, a few years ago, a control system to land a rocket ship on a barge in the middle of the ocean. You're, you're getting a, yeah, you're getting hired by SpaceX. It's like, how long is that going to take? It could take a year. It could take three years. It could take a thousand hours, a million hours. We don't know. And what is likely going to be in place at that point is that what we're selling is not necessarily a project. What we have to sell is a process. What we have to sell is, in that case, the Agile methodology and say, like, the way that we're going to most efficiently and most deliberately get to the outcome that you want 
client is by doing some work, learning from that work, and then changing what we're doing based on what we learned. And there's going to be all kinds of creative pursuits that should use that kind of a process as well. So that would be an example of high-risk work where the scope is uncertain or it can't be defined because the process or methodology required to solve that problem is inherently iterative or can't necessarily have something wrapped around it. And of course, that's a spectrum. You're going to have super high-risk work, super low-risk work, and everything in between. So it's a question of trying to just start placing your service offerings on this quadrant, and you'll start to get a sense of what corner of that quadrant it is closest to. And then we could talk about the pricing models in each of those four squares, and you can start to get an understanding of, you know, is this feasible? And what do I need to do to a service offering to move it into the quadrant that I feel is best suited for what I want to do? Makes sense. I mean, in in those instances, what are your thoughts on selling? So working that sort of agile method, I've got a couple of clients that bill based on that. And ultimately, it's they're selling access. They're not selling deliverables. They're Because they're theorizing, they're working. It's constantly iterative. So they're they're essentially selling access to their creative team. And ultimately, we'll see what the outcome actually looks like, what the end deliverable is going to look like, because we don't know. And that's very product, digital product oriented. Mm -hmm. Or in the example, and I don't know how many software developers or, or listeners on this podcast, but if we were talking in that sort of orientation, perhaps we're looking at, then it could be a website, for example, but we don't know exactly how everything's going to function and all of that. So we don't know what the back end is going to look like for development actually going into and charging a fee to start to really fully vet out the project so you have a better understanding. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I think, and that's where this stuff starts to get a little bit more nuanced, but that is a great strategy if there is a path to that. So let's say, for example, you're not building an enterprise software product, but you're building you know, a mobile app for an e-commerce store, and it's kind of a mid-sized thing. And you know historically that, yeah, there's some risk around the development side, but if we get answers to these questions, we do this discovery, we can really mitigate that risk and we can do a better job of scoping it out. In that case, you might split off a paid discovery or a roadmap or you know however you want to call that and ladder that into another offering that is priced more as a flat rate. So the to come back to the quadrant, because I think this will help place these things, in the bottom right-hand corner, I'm trying to visualize this in my brain now as well, we have an instance where we have low-value work that's high-risk. Typically, this is where time and materials is actually a pretty good strategy. Because it's high-risk, we don't want to take on a flat fee because we don't know what the scope's going to be. And usually, if it's low-value work, that means that we are actually using low-skill labor or we have you know less expensive labor. And we can actually use the hourly rate to our advantage and create an increased perception of value. And this is not something that's talked about very much anymore because we we like to move away from the billable hour and for good reasons. But I had a client that their hourly rate was $40 an hour and they had strong margins at $40 an hour because their whole team was offshore. And so even if you go to a client and it's going to cost, let's say, $10,000 for you to do it or the other agency, but you say my rate's 40 an hour and they say their rate's 100, they're going to perceive themselves as getting more value from you at $40 an hour. So you there, there might be a path there to lean into the hourly rate, create a perception of value. And what's important is that you've priced that hourly rate such that you have a strong enough gross margin that, again, as long as you're not eating a bunch of free hours, your margin is there. That's the most important thing. And then you can adapt to fluctuations and, and risk in that scope. So that's the bottom right-hand corner. On the bottom left-hand corner, you have low risk, low value. And this is typically where flat, flat rates make a lot of sense. 
because you can arbitrage the fact that you have low risk to increase your hourly rate. So the example I usually give here is if you asked me to build you a landing page for your website and I told you it was going to be $500 an hour, you'd probably tell me to screw off because you can get web development for a lot less than that. But if I said, hey, you know what? No problem, Robert. I'll get you a blazing fast SEO optimized, proven to convert landing page. I'll get it to you in a week and it's going to cost you $3,000. You might think that's actually a pretty good deal. Where do I sign? Now, I might still make $500 an hour, but I've taken on the risk. I've increased your level of certainty. I've created a perception of value. And I've arbitraged my low-risk, well-documented process to increase that rate by spending less time on the thing. So mm. that's time materials and flat rate. That's the bottom half of the quadrant. We move up to the top half. We have high-value, high-risk. So this is you know, high-value, high-complexity website and software development projects or really amorphous creative projects that are kind of open-ended or experiential. IDEO does work like this where it, they're brought in. It's like, here's a problem. Figure out how to solve it. Be creative. And it's exactly what you're talking about. They're saying, okay, here's a team of people designed to solve a problem like this. They're going to cost you this much every couple of weeks or every couple of months. And we're going to work on this using this process for as long as it takes to get to the outcome or until we're done working on this thing. And that's what I like to call abstracted time materials. When you really think about that business model, it's still time materials. You're selling time and you're marking it up, but you're abstracting away from the hour. And you're talking about these larger buckets of time. You're talking about these blended sets of teams and you're selling an expert team and a process and you're not having an hourly discussion. And again, you're baking your margins into this. So you're, you're getting your money regardless of how much time it takes. And what I love about this model is it becomes a backlog management conversation. It's really good for these scopes that are likely to change because if a client goes, hey, can you do this? In a flat fee world, the answer is yes, but, right? Yes, but do you want to open up the scope? Yes, but do you want to do take this thing out instead? Yes, but we're going to have to charge you extra for that. In time materials or an abstracted time materials world, the answer is yes, and do you want us to do that before or after the other things you've asked us to do? We just add it to the end because the agreement is we're just going to keep working until you're satisfied. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these firms that I'm sure you work with, they'll start a six-month project and it turns into a two-year relationship with the client where they're basically mm -hmm. leasing them an expert team and bringing this competency to their business. So I really like abstracted time materials for these high-value, high-risk situations that are highly technical. Again, yep. protects the margins, but allows you to work iteratively. And then the upper right-hand quadrant, high value, low risk, that's when I think getting into value-based pricing is a good way to go. And there's a spectrum to value-based pricing. The most basic form looks like a flat fee, but the conversation is anchored to, you know, the example I gave you earlier, you asked me for a landing page, instead of telling you it's three grand, I start asking about your business. How many clients get to this landing page? What's your average value? What's your current conversion rate? And I try to increase the price based on what that outcome could be for you. Mm -hmm. the, the, low, the lowest risk version of that, or the highest risk, I guess, for the agency where you're taking on more risk is when not only is the process de-risked, but the outcome is de-risked. And then you get into the most advanced form of value-based pricing, which is more performance-based. And you're saying, not only do I know how long it's going to take me to do this thing, but I have a pretty high degree of certainty that I can get you an outcome. So I'm going to charge you this kind of low rate, but I want even more compensation for the outcome itself. So a good example of this would be like, I want to get paid for every conversion you get on the landing page above mm -hmm. and beyond what you get today. And you can start mm -hmm. to arbitrage the low value thing. nature of that to your benefit. So that's the quadrant as a whole. And so it's a question of saying, where are my service are my offerings today? 
and can I move them more squarely into a quadrant? And what would need to be true if, if I'm finding that a client wants to buy in this way, what would I need to change about either how I position this or how I structure it in terms of risk so that it's feasible? It's a really brilliant way of looking at it, Marcel, I do have to say. it's You've clearly defined it to pick the model. You've really thought this through clearly. And for those of you listening, think about where you are in that quadrant value and risk profile, and it gives you a very clear direction of what, where you should be headed. Now, let's say that someone recognizes that ultimately they're currently time and materials, but they should be in a value model. And based on where they have found themselves on the quadrant, and they're concerned about changing their billing model, what would you say to them? Because they're not used to selling it or they're not sure that clients that they're working with are going to be okay with making the switch. Mm, it's a good question. I mean, what I would say to them is educate yourself. You know, there's lots of great resources out there and there's lots of very smart people like Robert that can help you learn how to navigate those conversations and start to shift your, your mindset as well as, you know, the way that you talk about your products in that way. And the other thing that I would say is, you know, there, there is going to be some operational shift, but in this particular situation, you're already going to have a lot of the habits that are going to make you successful as a value-based agency. Like if you're doing time materials, it means you're tracking your time. So you're going to yep. have an understanding of what your margins are. You're going to be able to see the improvement in those margins as you shift up to value-based pricing. And I have a vested interest in talking about all the ways to improve your profitability that aren't increasing your price. But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't often the fastest, easiest, and most obvious way to get an immediate improvement. And so, yeah, I, I would encourage you to very, very strongly consider it and reach out to Robert Patton and ask him for help. I was going to say many listeners, I'm sure, are going to have some questions around this and are very intrigued by the topic, as am I. How can they get in touch with you? You can check out parakeeto.com and you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Marcel Pettipa. I'm wearing a shirt with birds on it. If you want to watch a video of the framework that I just explained, I'll send a link to Robert to include in the show notes if you're more of a visual person. And I also have a podcast called the Agency Profit Podcast. Robert has been a guest on it as well as many other smart people. So check that out if you're an audio person and you want to listen to more nerdy things. There you go, everybody. I'll make sure to include all those links in the show notes and be sure to check them out. Thanks, Marcel. Thanks, Rob. Once again, thank you so much for carving out the time to hear what was shared on today's podcast. Now, chances are, if you're an agency owner listening to this podcast right now, then you may be feeling like this. Because I was finding myself constantly overworked within our business, um, constantly like too busy with fulfillment or too busy with uh, customer service needs. So I didn't have the time to go think about how am I going to close this person or what I'm going to say to this person or what am I going to do with this or what's the next strategy I need to do. Now, of course, this podcast is here to help you with a lot of things. But at one episode per week, it's going to take a while for us to share everything you need specifically for your situation. So if you're really serious about committing to fixing the problems in your agency now so you can build a truly profitable business and get your life back, then I want to invite you to apply for the Agency Accelerator Program. I'm not so stressed during calls thinking, oh my gosh, I got, I got to sell, I got to sell, I got to sell because if I don't sell, I don't make our I don't make our numbers, you know, and if I don't make our numbers, I can't pay our people. If I can't pay our people, then our business is down. This program is designed to help creative agency owners get to 1 million in revenue per year in 12 months or less. I char typically charge one client a $3,000, anywhere from 2000 to 3000 Now I'm uh, moving towards only 5000 and up. And my latest client that I closed is a $10,000 client on a monthly retainer. 
We only accept about 20% of the agencies that apply to this program because we want to make sure that we only work with people who will commit the time, energy, and resources required to take what they learn in the program and use it to create an agency of their dreams. You've taught me and you've taught us how to build this within our company that if X happens, this happens. Boom, 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 boom. Like it's so systematic that it's going to work for itself. That has given me the sense of like, oh, I know what the heck I'm talking about. I know what I'm good at. I know that I can deliver upon what I want to deliver. And it, yeah, I gained hell of a lot of confidence for sure. So if that's you, then I want to invite you to apply today. Just hit the link in the show notes to apply for the Agency Accelerator program or go to creativeagencysuccess.com forward slash apply. Thanks. And I'll see you inside the program. Mm-hmm.